Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Brett. Good morning, friends. Everybody doing all right? Good. All right. Yes, we are continuing our series in uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, together this morning. Um, And we come to the question, a question on fasting. Um, and it's not lost on me that we're coming to the question on fasting right before like the greatest like gluttonous holiday on the calendar, right? Thanksgiving. And so uh, it's kind of, kind of an awkward moment. Uh, but for some of you, you're like, yes, I need a fast before Thanksgiving. That'd be great. Like slim down a little bit. Uh, no, that's not, that's not the point of fasting. Uh, before we get into kind of the conversation, um, before we get into the text, we're just kind of identifying an elephant in the room. We realize, we know, in fact, that at Flourishing Grace, fasting is not something that we're good at. It's just not. Uh, Brett, who he said earlier, right, he leads our forma- adult formation ministry. Um, and a month ago, we had a, our Path Groups course. And in order to get in the Path Groups course, you filled out like a little online questionnaire, ask you, man, about some questions about how you practice spiritual disciplines. And one of them is like rate yourself on a scale from, from one to five on how you do with fasting. And pretty much across the board, everybody's like, terrible, right? We just, we just don't, we just don't do it. Um, I read an article this week and the kind of the opening line of the article was, fasting is the kale of spiritual disciplines, all right. Uh, it's a thing that you know is good for you. Like, you know it's good for you. You know it's good for your body. It's fasting. You know it's good for you spiritually. Um, but you just don't want to eat it, right? It just doesn't, doesn't taste good. It's not palatable, uh, which is the opposite, right? We don't, we don't want to do it. It's not something that we enjoy doing. It's not the thing that we're going to seek out. Nobody ever wakes up one day, like on a random Friday, is like, you know, I'm going to fast today. That sounds good. That, didn't, that doesn't happen. No, nobody does that. It's one of the harder disciplines. And so we are going to talk a little bit about fasting this morning. Uh, But the good news is this too. Jesus is asked the question about fasting, but then he takes that and in his answer, he kind of broadens it out. So we're going to, we're going to get into some broader things uh, this morning as well. And so the the text begins with a question to, to Jesus. Why don't your disciples fast? Why don't your disciples fast? Now, in order for us to kind of understand the question, we got to kind of put ourselves in first century Israel a little bit. Fasting in first century Israel uh, was really done um, for three reasons, one of three reasons. Uh, Whether it was a national kind of crisis, so maybe a time of war, or or maybe the death of some great leader, the whole nation would spend time fasting because of this crisis. Uh, Or maybe it was... um, 
uh, kind of a, a, well, that would be like a tragedy or crisis. A, a tragedy, something like, um, uh, you know, famine or a plague, um, something bad is happening. That would be another reason why people would, would fast. Some sort of disease, people would fast because of a disease. And then the third reason, the kind of final reason, was be more personal, right? So people would pr- take on a personal fast um, in order to e- either kind of gain some form of repentance, uh, to gain some form of atonement, for God, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to starve myself so that God will forgive me, which is not a good reason for fasting, by the way. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, right? But it was, a, it was always sorrowful. It's always one of these kind of three things. And, and for the most kind of religious people of the day, so this is who's being described in the text, the disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of John, the disciples of the great rabbis of the day, they would fast two days a week every single week. They'd fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Every Monday and every Thursday, the most devout men would fast every single week. And so the setting for our text this morning is most likely on a Monday or a Thursday. And Jesus and his disciples are enjoying a delicious lunch, right? They're chowing down on some bread or some fish. And the people who have gathered to see Jesus do another miracle or hear, hear another teaching of Jesus, right, say, wait a second, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why aren't your disciples fasting? The disciples of John fast. The disciples of the Pharisees fast. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus, so brilliantly, as he always does, right, answers the question with another question. Right? He doesn't just, doesn't just answer their question. He leans in and gives them uh, another question. So he's asked, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus answers. He says, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, at first glance, you and I may not pick up on this, but his original audience would have picked up on this pretty quickly, right? Um, it's a rhetorical question. He is going to answer it for us in a minute, but it's a rhetorical question. Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The answer is absolutely not. What Jesus has done is he's taken two polar opposite things and stacked them next to each other, right? Fasting is always associated with some form of mourning, right? The death of a great leader, war, disease, famine, something terrible, right? Or my own sin, I I need forgiveness, I need atonement, right? That's fasting in in first century Israel. And he's stacking it next to a wedding feast, now, if you've been married or you've been to a wedding, you know a wedding's a pretty good time. It's a, that's, a, that's a fun time. It's a party. But it's nothing. Your wedding, I don't care how good your wedding was. Listen, I've been to some crazy weddings. It's nothing. It is nothing compared to a wedding in first century Israel. It's not. In first century Israel, okay, in first century Israel, a wedding lasted seven days. Seven days. Seven days of feasting, seven days of, of the best wine that they could get their hands on, seven days of dancing, seven, seven days of celebration. When your daughter gets married for the first time in first century Israel, it's a huge deal. And it's a massive week-long party. And everybody in the village comes. And in fact, even the most devout religious elites, the rabbis of the day, would halt their Torah teaching for those seven days. They would not fast for those seven days. And they would not require their students to participate in the teaching for those seven days because it was seven days of party. And so Jesus is stacking fasting next to 
uh, these seven days of party. And he says, can, can, the, bri- can, the, bride, can, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is absolutely not. Jesus gives the answer. He says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This leads us kind of the first thing in the text that I want you to see this morning. The first thing that I want you to kind of begin to chew on is this. The presence of Jesus must be sought and celebrated. It should be sought and celebrated. Jesus is saying that he is the bridegroom. When he asks the question, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? He answers it, turning to his disciples and saying, as long as they, my disciples, have the bridegroom, me, Jesus, with them, they can't fast. He's saying that I'm the bridegroom. Now, in the Old Testament, in ancient Israel, as you read through the Old Testament, those of you who know your Bible, right? right Israel is constantly, constantly referred to in the prophets as the bride. The nation of Israel is the bride, always, right? And sometimes, sometimes it's, a, it's a, in a good way. She's the bride that's pursued. She's the bride that's loved. She's the bride that's adored. In some ways, it's not so good thing. Often she's the, she's the whore. Uh, that's, that's the Bible language, not me, okay? She's the whore that's pursuing uh, other gods and the other, other women of other nations. She's constantly leaving God uh, to go, to go f- pursue these lesser things. Now, in that analogy, who is the bridegroom? Who's the groom? In the prophets, who's the groom? Who's the groom? For those of you who read your Bible, who's the groom? Every time, it's the same, same person. God, yeah, there you go. It's like one of the safest answers. God, right? God's the groom every single time. And so what Jesus is doing again here in Mark is declaring who he is. He's God. If you remember last week, for those of you who were here last week, right? We, we talked about Jesus heal, healing the paralytic, right? The, the boy who's lowered down through the ceiling. And Jesus says, man, I, for, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room is like, you can't do that. God and God alone is the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus looks at the boy and says, that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the boy and says, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And he gets up and he couldn't walk. He's cured. He's healed, right? And he, Jesus is declaring in that room on that day, saying, I am God. I am the one who has the authority to forgive sins. And here he's asked a question about fasting and he turns it into an opportunity to once again declare who he is. I'm the bridegroom. I am God. I'm the one who's been pursuing the nation of Israel for over a thousand years. I am, I am. I'm God. I am the bridegroom, the one who will give up his life for his bride, washing her with the water of his word, that he might present her to himself without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, Jesus gives up his life for the bride. When Jesus goes to the cross, it's the bridegroom giving his life for you and giving his life for me so that we might be people who are cleansed, right? On the cross, Jesus imputes his righteousness to us and he takes all of our sin and imputes our sin onto himself. 
And all of that sin is nailed to the cross. And we are, we are people who are clothed in his righteousness. Now, why does he do this? Does he do this just so that we can be a cleansed people? A people who are freed from sin and freed from guilt and we can now live our lives more happy? No. No, that's an effect of it. But the reason that he cleanses us from the inside out is to usher in the new covenant that he can take up residence inside of us to construct and to build a new temple not made with human hands, a temple where he will reside for all time. He comes and takes up residence inside of us, the followers of Jesus. We are a people of the presence of God. We are a people who now have access to the presence of Jesus. We can be with him at all times. He is nearer to you than your own skin. He is as near to you as the breath in your lungs. He is here right now in this space, in this room. Jesus is present with us, and he is present in you at all times. And so, are we a people who are seeking and celebrating the presence of Jesus? Is that true of you? Is it true of me? I think it's easy for us to kind of get caught up every day in kind of doing the right things, right? To doing the right things that we for, now I'm not talking about dead religion. I'm talking about genuinely because I love Jesus, I mean I want to read my Bible every day. Because I love Jesus, I want to pray. Because I love Jesus, I want to attend church and hang out with you guys and, and work on building community, right? Good things for a good reason, but it's easy for us to forget that we are to be a people who are with Jesus. That is the goal of our Christian life, to be with him. The reason I read my Bible or should be reading my Bible, the reason I'm supposed to read my Bible is to be with Jesus, to do it with him. And prayer is to be with him, to heighten my my awareness of his ever-existing presence in my life. And the reason we work on community is because we believe that Jesus right now is in our midst, and that is to be sought and celebrated We are to be a people who are awakened to the work of the Spirit in us and live with a moment-by-moment dependency on and sensitivity to the promptings of the Spirit of Christ in us. Now, this sermon is not really about this at all because Jesus is going to move on pretty quick. And so we need to move on. However, for some of you in the room, you're like, man, wait a second. I need to hear more about that. How, how, do I, how do I experience the presence of Christ? How, 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 do I, how do I live with an awakened awareness of his presence? How, how do I do this? So I'm going to give you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three book recommendations, okay? Uh, three books, kind of 101, 201, 301. Um, and if you have, what, we've, what I've found is that so often we think we're so far ahead spiritually than where we really are. And so if you haven't read 301 or 201, you, you are 101, all right? And so what, 101, 101 is, a, is a little book called The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life by a guy named Charles Stanley. Um, if you haven't read it, you got to read it. It's a little cheesy, okay? It's been written a long time ago. Uh, but I read that book uh, many, many years ago, and it changed my life forever. The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life by Charles Stanley. If you haven't read it, read it. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about it as you do. The second book is a book that we used to give out here a lot at Flourishing Grace. Like one day, I don't know, I was just, I splurged. I was like an impulse buy. I bought like 300 copies. Uh, We just gave them out forever. Uh, Called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Um, Brother Lawrence was this French Catholic monk in... I remember 1,500, 1,700, a long time ago. I can't remember. Uh, and he was a dishwasher. He washed dishes. Um, and, and yet he had, this, he had this deep 
awareness of the presence of God. He was constantly, constantly practicing the presence of God. And, and these higher-ups in the church uh, would write to him, like these cardinals and bishops would say, wait, how are you doing this? How, like, what, is, what does it look like? And so he would write these letters back and forth, and they took all these letters and they compiled them into the book, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And so you can look that up. Make sure, though, if you buy that book, you get the modern English version. You don't, he was French, there's, there's French versions, there's Latin versions, there's Old English. Just be careful. The fair warning, if you, get the, if you get the Latin one, that's on you, not on me. Um, and then the last one is Union, uh, Union with Christ uh, by Rankin Wilborn, because uh, that's like 301, so Union with Christ. That's kind of what the, the, the theologians of old would refer to this as, is Union with Christ. Paul talked about it as walking in the Spirit. Uh, Brother Lawrence said it's practicing the presence of God, but... So those are the books that I would recommend on that if you want to know more about, man, what does it look like to seek the presence of God so that we can celebrate the presence of Christ in our lives? However, here's the reality. Jesus is not fully present with us in this room as he was in that day in Capernaum, right? He's not, he's not physically present. Uh, he, he's not here on the stage talking to you. He's not walking around. He's not sitting next to you. Now, he is as near to you and as spiritually present, if not more so than he was on that day. But he's not as physically present on that day. Jesus makes it clear that his disciples don't need to fast in that moment because he, the source of all power and all joy, is right there in their midst. They are free to feast. However, he also makes it clear that the time is coming when his disciples will fast. They will fast because they don't have him anymore, right? And this leads us to the second thing I want you to think about and chew on this morning. We are a people of both and. We're a people of both and. A people of both feasting and fasting. We're people of both feasting and fasting. This is what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now again, Jesus is saying another shocking thing. I said earlier, right, he's, he's stacking two opposing things next to each other. The fasting and a wedding feast. These things don't go together, but he's still doing it. He's a master of this, right? He is shocking his audience and he's waking them. He's causing them to say, wait, what, what are you talking about, right? I don't know if he picked up on it, but he saw, said something that's like, not normal, right? One day, the bridegroom will be taken away from them. That doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense. It's confusing if you begin to think about it. Now, we have the ability to look back on it on this side uh, of the life of Christ. But in his audience, they're like, wait a second, what? Like, imagine you go to a wedding. Like, you get all dressed up and you're ready to party. Like, you're ready to dance. You're ready for some delicious food. Like, you're ready for a good time, right? And you get there and you get your seat. And the, bro- and the groom comes out with his, with his groomsmen. And they're standing there, like, waiting for the bride to come down the aisle. Like, they're ready. It's going to be amazing. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these four guys with masks, like, Joe, grab the groom and shove him in some un- unmarked van and haul him off. Like, that's not normal, Right? Grooms don't get taken. It's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus 
is pointing to his arrest and his crucifixion. It's the first time. He's saying, one day, this groom gets taken. And on that day, it will be a day of mourning. They will fast. And he doesn't say day, does he? He says days. The days, plural, are coming. We are a people who live in these days. We are a people of both fasting and feasting. We today live in a moment where as Christians, we are experiencing an already but not yet faith. Already but not yet. The bridegroom has come. He has conquered sin and death. And his spirit is in us working for our good. So we celebrate, we feast, we delight in Christ. However, the bridegroom has been taken away. And one day we know that he will return in full glory and dwell with us forever. But until then, we live in a halfway there existence. So we fast. We mourn that he's not here. We mourn that we are not with him fully and completely. We fast and we increase our hunger for him. We are a people of celebrating and mourning, feasting and fasting. We do this in many ways. Um, man, for the longest time, the church was really, really good at this. Um, we're not as good as, at it any, anymore as we used to be. Um, and one of the ways we practice this is with a yearly liturgy known as the church calendar, right? And some of you grew up in a church that uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of very strictly followed the church calendar. Maybe you grew up Catholic. Maybe you grew up Anglican. Um, here at Flourishing Grace, we are working hard to be a people who honor and follow the church calendar because we think it's actually really, really beneficial, Right? The church calendar kind of leads us through a yearly liturgy where we move through seasons, things like Lent. Right? Lent, originally, it's been, it's been way, way watered down. Lent originally was 40 days of fasting. 40 days where you would not eat from, from dawn to dusk. And so then after the sun goes down, you eat a small meal every single day. So it's not 40 days of like starvation, just 40 days of fasting, right? So you eat a small meal every day after the sun goes down. Preparing your heart, preparing your mind, preparing your body through the discipline of your body for Holy Week. And then Holy Week comes, and on Holy Saturday, the day uh, before Easter, right, is a day of global fast where everybody around the world fasts all day. And you don't eat that meal. You don't eat that meal at sundown, right, because the Savior has been taken away. The bridegroom has been taken You see, fasting points us to exactly what Jesus is talking about. But then Sunday morning, Easter morning, is time for feast. It's time for celebration. We're people of both fasting and feasting. I love, we used to live in Chicago for a long time before we moved to Utah. In our last few years, we lived in a a place called Ukrainian Village. And it was all these old people from Ukraine. Um, and they came and they settled in Chicago in multiple generations. And it was kind of dying out, right? It was all the, all the hipsters were now taking over and moving into their apartments. But they had built these old, beautiful churches, the whole place, all the Ukrainian villages, all these awesome churches. And on Holy Saturday, you lay there in your bed, and I would always stay up till midnight. Because on midnight, Easter morning, every single one of those churches would just erupt, and the bells would just go nuts. And then you could hear it through the whole neighborhood. It's amazing. People who understood this rhythm of fasting and feasting and feasting and fasting, right? We're coming up upon another moment in the church calendar, Advent. 
You're going to hear us talk a lot about Advent next month as we move into it after Thanksgiving, right? And Advent is another one of these church liturgies of feasting and fasting. Advent comes from the Latin term Adventus, which simply means coming, right? And so to be a season, these weeks leading up to, to, to Christmas, that prepare us for the coming of Christ. It's a, it's a season where we are meant to be a people who cast our minds back to ancient Israel. A people who remind ourselves of what we are without Jesus. Hopeless people wandering about in the darkness. But then as we move towards Christmas, we are reminded that the people wandering about in darkness have seen a great light. Right? That we have been freed and we have been restored by the coming, the Adventus of Jesus. And in, early on in the church... Advent was a season of, of fasting. Every Friday was a fast. Every Friday. You'd fast, and then you'd break that fast together in the evening. And every Saturday was like a more intense Sabbath, a, a Sabbath that was really uh, a lot of abstinence, a lot of more focus on the Sabbath, and then a big feast on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, as the church gathered. That's, that was the rhythm of Advent, that preparing through, through kind of a bodily discipline, preparing people for for Christmas. Now I wonder, what would happen if you took that to heart this holiday season, this Advent? If maybe you and your family, you and your path group, you and some friends here at Flourishing Grace, I mean, every Friday, or maybe even every other Friday, or maybe just one Friday, we're going to fast together. We're going to fast together from sun up to sundown, and then we're going to break that fast together. We're going to get our kids in the room, and we're going to read Scripture over one another. We're going to sing carols. We're going to bust out the nicest drinks and the best food, and we're just going to have a big old party because our Savior has come. We're going to be a people of feasting and fasting. How much more powerful might Christmas be for you? How much more meaningful might it become? How much more special could a tradition like that make Christmas for you? How much more might you gain from giving up? This is what fasting is. Fasting is not just a, this, this kind of penance. Fasting is not a way to get a, a reconciliation with God. No, Jesus does that for us. Fasting is a way that we gain by giving up. I'm going to give you a couple things, ways that we gain from fasting. In our fasting, our hunger reminds us of our need for Christ. We gain a greater understanding of a need that we already have. We already know we need Jesus, right? But fasting increases our understanding of that need. I need Jesus more than I need food in my belly. I would rather die of starvation um, with Jesus than to live with a full belly without Jesus. We gain an understanding, gain a greater understanding of our need for Jesus. We need him more than we need anything. We need him in our marriages. We need him in our friendships. We need him in our thoughts. We need him in our speech. We need him in our actions. We need him at all times and in every way. We need Jesus in every area of our lives to bring the nourishment that we need. In fasting, number two, we are, we are reminded of our inability to conquer sin. I'm a weak man, and there's nothing that reveals my weakness greater than just a few hours without a food, man. Like, I become grumpy, and I complain, and I'm just irritated. I just, I, my weakness is quickly revealed, and I, I, I'm quickly reminded I can't overcome sin. I can't even overcome hunger. How am I supposed to overcome the greatest disease the planet has ever known, that the creation has ever known, if I can't even overcome hunger? If I have a God who never hungers, a God who never thirsts, 
A God who has stepped into time and has rescued and redeemed me. Fasting reminds me of my inability to conquer my own sin. In fasting, our hunger reminds us of our delight in Christ, right? The one who brings nourishment and joy, the source of all joy, the source of all delight is Christ, not food. But yet when I, when I break a fast and I feast together, I'm reminded of his richness and his beauty and his worth and his goodness. We gain more from giving up. And you cannot gain the depths of those things without giving up. You can't just magically make that stuff come alive to you, right? It comes alive through discipline. And so we gain by giving up. This is some of the reasons why we fast. We want God to be the supreme hunger of our hearts. Is that not true of you? I, for those of you in the room who are followers of Jesus, and I know not everybody is, right? I know not everybody is. But for those of you who are, do you not want God to be the supreme hunger of your heart? I know you do. And when God is the supreme hunger of your heart, he will be supreme in all of the other areas of your life. When he is your chief love and your chief delight and your chief joy, when he is the supreme hunger of your heart, he will be supreme in all of the areas of your life. And so we gain a greater hunger for God as we give up food temporarily. This is what fasting does. Now, lastly, lastly, Jesus leads into these two parables. And it seems like he shifts gears because these parables aren't directly about fasting. What he's doing is he's broadening kind of his, his point. He's like, all right, I'm going to talk about fasting, but I'm going to talk about something far more than fasting. I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to, I'm going to take you someplace way deeper. Okay? That's what he does in these two parables at the end. Now, these are two parables with the same meaning. For those of you who are new, maybe new to church, new to your Bible, a parable is simply a teaching, a story that teaches. Okay? A story that teaches. So Jesus is going to give us two stories, two examples, two illustrations that are meant to teach us. They're meant to kind of like worm their way into our ear where you just can't forget it and you chew on it and you think about it and you think about it and you think about it. And he doesn't give the answer. He doesn't give the meaning. Right? It's a path of self-discovery as you kind of dig through this riddle. It's not really a riddle, but as you dig through the, the story, and you kind of, what did he mean by that? And then it helps you to remember what he meant by that. And so we're running out of time, so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase these. The first one is the story of, uh, or the, the example of the garments, right? So you can't sew a new patch on an old garment. You can't do it. Some of you know this. You, you've, you're, you sew. Uh, maybe you've made your own clothes, right? You can't do it. You can't take an old garment, like an old cloak. You got your favorite cloak. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in first century Israel now. Your favorite cloak that you wear every day. It's comfy. It's nice. It's good. You're like, this looks good. But then you tear a hole in it. You're like, ah, dang it. All right? You can't go out and get a new piece of fabric and, and sew that onto your favorite old cloak. Because we all know cotton shrinks. It shrinks. Right? You've all gone out and you've bought that nice new t-shirt or somebody gave you the sweet t-shirt. You're like, I love this thing. It's so soft. I love the way it fits. It fits so good. And then you wash it and you're like, I can't fit in it anymore, right? I can't go out in public in this thing. It's way too tight. I can't, can't do that anymore, right? You know cotton shrinks. And so if you take a new piece of cloth and you attach it to an old one, the old one's already shrunk. And you spend all day sewing this nice new piece of cloth onto the old one. Some of you, it's like 30 minutes. For me, it's like all day long. I'm sewing this thing on, and it still looks terrible. I sew this thing on, and I put it on, and it fits great, and everything's good, and everything's odd. Man, I got my old cloak back, and it looks fresh. It looks nice. And you wear it, and then you wash it, and it shrinks, 
And it destroys, it tears away at all the work you did. And both the old garment and the new cloth are both useless. They're both, they're both destroyed. And now, the, So what you have is something new coming into contact with something old. And as a result, both are destroyed. And the second parable is the same, right? You can't put new wine into old wineskins, right? In first century Israel, wine would have been carried around in animal skins. And the purpose is, is as wine sits, it continues to ferment. And as it ferments, it expands. And you need skin that can stretch as it expands, right? So now if you have old wine skins that have already been stretched out, they've already expanded, they've already been weathered in the sun, and they've been weathered as you carry them around, and you put new wine in them, you fill them up, and it begins to expand and it begins to stretch, it's going to burst and both the old wine skin that you could have put water in or used for something else, right, is now ruined, and so is the wine that you put in it. So again, you have something new and something old being forced together, and both are destroyed. Jesus is trying to teach people, and he's trying to show them. He's expanding this idea beyond fasting. He said, what I'm coming with, what I'm bringing to you, what the bridegroom is bringing, is a whole new way, a new covenant as Jeremiah says, as God says through Jeremiah, right, I'm going to write the law on their hearts. I'm going to take up residence in them. I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. I will save them, and I will redeem them. This is what Jesus said. I'm bringing in the new covenant. We celebrated this morning with communion a little while ago. This new covenant marked by the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. A new covenant in a new way, a whole new way of living, a new, new way of Jesus in the early church. Christians were called followers of the way, this whole new way of Christ. And when you try to take that, and you take all the rules and regulations of the old covenant and all the rules and regulations that the Pharisees had created around that, and you kind of try to put that in each other, on top of each other, both are going to be destroyed. You can't have both. You can't. And some of you know this. Some of you have lived this out. You were born into a religion. You were born and your parents and your grandparents raised you and they taught you about all the ways that you're supposed to live. And Jesus was kind of sprinkled into this religion. And he was, he was kind of the name of the religion. He was forced into it. The new was forced into the old, right? And you were brought up in this and you were taught to do all the right things and all the right behaviors and check off all the boxes and you do everything right and everything's going to be okay. And then one day you wake up and you actually begin to read the Bible for yourself. One day you wake up and you hear the gospel for the first time in a real way that makes sense. And all of a sudden, poof, the whole thing explodes. And praise God for that. Because he has saved you and he's rescued you and redeemed you. But let me ask you, did it hurt? Did it cause some pain? Some destruction in your life? I know it did. Did it cause some pain in your family, in your career, in friendships? Was your identity wrecked for a moment? Yes, it was, and I know it was. Because you can't put Jesus into religion. It does not work. And any time you try, it's never really Jesus. It's never really good religion either. Now, some of you in the room, you've been living this and you don't even know it yet because for you it's not religion it's not religion, it's culture, right? You've been living in the way of culture. 
You've bought into this idea that, that through, through the things that culture promises are going to bring fulfillment, you will find fulfillment. And so if I could just make a little bit more money, if I could just get to that position and be that person at work that, that, that finally lands that position and everybody respects me, then in that moment, then I will be fulfilled. If I could just create this identity on social media that everybody looks at and says, like, 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 like that, like, then I'll be fulfilled. If I could just get my kids to obey and listen, if I could just meet that special someone, then I would be fulfilled. And you sprinkle Jesus on all of that. As Brett, our director uh, of adult formation says, you sprinkle Jesus on your life. And you, th- and you look good doing it. You look good showing up on, in, to church and having everything put together. You look good doing it. You look good doing it. But one day, as you were trying to attach Jesus to culture, one day your life will get washed. And your identity will crumble. You'll lose that job or you'll lose that marriage or your kids will fail you. And it'll get torn apart. And the old garment is gone and it's worthless. And you realize the patch was just a patch. It was never really Jesus. You can't attach Jesus to religion or culture. If you want to walk with Jesus, church, if you want to walk with him, if you really want to know him, You must cry out to him to pull you out of the rat race and step into the wedding feast. Pull me out. I don't want to believe these lies anymore. I don't want to chase these dreams anymore. I know they're not going to fulfill me, but everything in me says that they're going to. Pull me out, and I want to join the wedding feast. I want to be with the bridegroom. You can't remain who you once were. You can't stay that way. You must become a completely new receptacle for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in your life. You must allow Jesus to make you new. This is the last piece. You must allow Jesus to make us new. He must be the one who reforms you into a new receptacle for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in your life. This is going to require some times of fasting where we teach ourselves who we are without him and increase our hunger for him. But this is also going to require some times of feasting and celebration where we rejoice together and remind ourselves and remind each other of all that we have in him right now and will someday soon fully have Fasting, friends, fasting reminds us that the things of this world never actually satisfy. The things of religion, do it all. Do all the right things. It'll never actually satisfy. It'll never satisfy you. It'll never satisfy God. Jesus and Jesus only will satisfy. So will you? Will you reject religion and will you reject culture and cling to Jesus, becoming a completely new receptacle for Jesus and the gospel as he expands into all of the areas of your life? Will you give yourself to that? Will you become a completely new creation in Christ Jesus? Will you gain everything by giving up? Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we come before you, and we just, we just acknowledge that in this place. I pray that right now, right now, that you'd help us to release our grasp and the grasp of our heart 
on all the lies that religion and culture have sold us, that we would be a people who fast and a people who feast, a people who discipline our bodies to remind us of all the goodness that's found in you, and a people who feast to rejoice and celebrate together of all that you've given us. Let us be a people who live lives that are marked of gaining fullness and joy and flourishing by giving up, giving up the things of this world, giving up our false ability to do it on our own. Strengthen us now, I pray. Pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.